Hello and welcome to the Golfing Mind. And this um, week's edition is coming from America. I'm currently in South Carolina visiting a very good friend of mine. And uh, I thought it'd be a great opportunity to have him as a, a guest on today's show. Uh, he, For those of you that listen regularly, you'll probably remember the name. He uh, Last year, 2022, he did his picks for the Masters uh, and the Open Championship. Of course, none of them were very good, so we didn't invite him back in 2023, where, as you know, we got three of the four major winners correctly predicted. Uh, but I thought it would be very interesting for two reasons um, to have our guest, Matt Barr. One was a number of days ago, I went with him. He went to get fitted for a driver, and it was a fascinating process to see, and it got me thinking, um, how important is it for the average golfer to get fitted? And uh, we'll discuss that. But we're also going to discuss uh, another aspect of golf today, which is, you know, what do fans want? What do you think is the motivation for the fans who watch golf live uh, and on television? But first, let me uh, introduce uh, our guest or my guest, my co-host today, uh, Matt Barr. Matt, welcome. I'm humiliated and disgusted by that introduction. <laughs> well, get used to it because there's plenty more where that came from. Uh, bring it on. Well, you were, your predictions weren't very good last year, were they? Well, just you, you, you called Brian Harmon every time for every major, and it eventually worked out because he's a fabulous player. And Victor Hovland is another one that you tapped into. Look what he's about to do this afternoon. That's true. I should point out that we're uh, recording this on the Sunday, the final day of the event. The FedEx Championship. The FedEx Championship, which is pretty. Uh, and, and Victor Hovland is my man. I'm a big fan of Victor Hovland's, and I just think he's going to become a great player going forward. But firstly, let's talk about golf club fitting. I always thought that was for the elite players and for professionals only. Uh, and I know it's become more commonplace. How long have you been getting clubs fitted? My first experience was at a big box store some, I want to say 30 years ago. I was in Chicago for business and a meeting flamed out of me and I had some time to kill and I drove by um, this particular large golf retailer and thought, you know, let me uh, pursue this a little bit. So fortunately, he had some time available, went through about an hour and a half fitting and uh, for irons and the gentleman turned to me and said, oh, you can buy standard. It's like an hour and a half invested and I can buy off the shelf. Um, so um, I think there's something to be said for fitting irons versus drivers versus hybrids and, and putters. And, uh, you know, I, I really, after that experience, never really did much of it. I had one other experience maybe 15 years ago. But as my game started to diminish my skill set, um, club head speed, ball speed, spin, all that. It started to sort of resonate with me again, just the idea of doing this. But since you've had clubs fitted, did, do you feel that it's given you more confidence or does it genuinely make you play better because you think the club is perfectly suited to your swing? I think it's probably both, right? I mean, one's a function of the other. You trust it a little bit more because, you know, it's, 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 it's suited to your swing. Um, I went and got uh, a couple hybrids, I don't know, six months ago, and I love them. And I, I can swing freely, and I, they're predictable. Um, my swing's not always predictable, but they're very forgiving, and I think, uh, I think there's a lot to be said for that. And do, well, let's get it right. Do you, do you play with a three-iron anymore? No. 
I uh, you have a four iron. I retired my two iron when I was forty five. My three iron when I was fifty. My four iron when I was fifty five. And now that I'm approaching sixty, my five iron is very nervous. <laughs> Tell me, did you? I mean, your uh, your son Charlie, who we mentioned a few weeks ago, uh, played in the U.S. Amateur Show. Very well done to Charlie. Um, is every club in his bag fitted? Yes. So um, he started getting fitted fairly early on. His high school coach was also, or is still a uh, uh, works for, works for um, Titleist as a uh, demo guy and club fitter. So he had, you know, a unique opportunity to get fitted early um, by him. And uh, he's just continued to do so. He's played Titleist exclusively since he was a little kid. He dabbled with uh, PXG for a bit, but he's back with some uh, Titleist CBs right now. Well, I know I played with Charlie in Scotland a few weeks ago, and I, he had this putter, which I'd never seen before, but you told me it's the same putter that um, uh, um, Adam Scott plays with. Adam Scott, yeah. he's It's a lab putter, um, LAB, and it's given him an incredible amount of, uh, of confidence. And to go back to that earlier statement, I think um, there's more upside to getting fitted for putters and and uh, hybrids and drivers and woods than I would say with irons. In my case, and now perhaps it's different, but Lucas Glover, for instance, is, is putting with the, the lab putter right now, and he is lights out. The guy's the best ball striker on the tour, but he struggled with his putter over the years, and now look at him. Well, I've always felt putting is a matter of confidence, and I think you've got to love your putter until you find a putter that you feel very comfortable, confident with. You've got to keep looking for it. What I, what I think is interesting, that well, there was an argument many years ago. It never got any traction. But what do you think of this for an argument? The argument was every player on the tour should have to play with the same clubs, the same spec, the same loft, same lie. Um, so now it becomes completely about ball striking, not about fitted clubs. It didn't last a second, but it was a suggestion. Um, and there's a story. There's a story goes that in more than one major tournament, you know, a, a player has literally walked into one of the manufacturers' sort of sort of on-site stores and said, "I need a putter. I need a wedge." And there's a, a one guy allegedly um, borrowed a putter from a friend that was a twenty-dollar supermarket putter. So I'm not saying that puts fitting so devalues fitting because I think fitting is very valuable and I think also 30, 40, 50 years ago make no mistake Jack Nicholas, Ben Hogan Arnold Palmer they all had their clubs fitted mm-hmm. and we just it wasn't available and many of them were club tinkers themselves oh sure you know, they were grinding they were bending their lot, their clubs to achieve certain lofts I think fitting um, is has come a long way for the average golfer alright at that level They've got the best fitters in the industry working with the best pros in the world. But for guys like you and I and the evolution of fitting and how it's become more accessible, uh, I highly recommend it. I think it's it's definitely uh, improved my game with my hybrids. I think I'll see that with this new driver. And I don't think it adds a lot of cost, does it? Not to the – if you go and buy a set in a store. Know, it's and- not a huge premium relative to the uh, – 
expertise that is injected into the equation? Yeah. Anyway, just, that was just a thought. What I want to talk to you about today is, as you know, this podcast is often about the mental game, um, the mental game as we play it. Or, But I want to look at almost the, not necessarily the mental game, but I want to look at the game as we watch it. Because I've become of the opinion that when you ask people what is their favorite tournament to watch, it's got to be the majors. Right, I think... For me, my favorite tournament to watch would, number one, be the Masters, followed by the Open Championship, followed by the U.S. Open, uh, followed by the PGA, even before anything else. And my very, very favorite tournament, as I mentioned last week, is the Ryder Cup, because there's drama from the first tee shot. If the guy hooks it out of bounds, you're thinking, oh, good, they're going to go one up. But here's my question that I wanted to discuss with you today as a spectator, what is it you want? When you watch golf, do you want drama? Do you want to see someone earning five? I mean, today, if Victor Hovland wins the FedEx, he's going to win, what's the? 18. $18 million. $18 million. And I think the number two gets something like $6 million and or more. I mean, it goes all, I think the top 10 guys will earn a total of $48 million. Now, does that make it more enjoyable for you to watch because of that money? No, I mean, obviously, it has little to do with it. It's, it's the competition. It's the storylines that are developed. It's the, 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 the folks who just sort of perhaps are not necessarily in the FedEx Cup because no one comes out of no, – there's no Cinderella story there because once the top 30 are set, um, obviously, it's a, it's a culmination of a lot of great golf during the season. But um, you never know, particularly in events like – the Open, um, which is one of my favorites. I mean, I remember Justin Rose as a boy playing and, you know, competing, leading. I don't know where how he finished. I know he stumbled on 18 in his last round. But, I mean, where do you see that? And so that that's super exciting. I'm with you. I think the Ryder Cup is right up there at the top of my list. Um, but here's a question for you. The President's Cup isn't, is it? It's not as it's not as exciting, no. No, and the reason this is my sort of thinking is as spectators, we love rivalries in any country, in any sport. If you look at Formula One, you're going to get Verstappen against Hamilton. You look at tennis, you're going to get Djokovic against Federer against. You're going to get these iconic head to heads. And golf is what I think that's what fans want to see. You want to see McElroy going down the stretch against, you know. Uh, Spieth, Hovland, um, uh, Scotty, Scheffler. And I don't know, this might sound a mean thing to say, and I don't mean it to sound mean, but I I wonder if you were watching the Open Championship and there were five unknowns battling it out in the final round, would you be as engaged? I think I would. In fact, I I have been. Um, That's one of the reasons I think it's such a wonderful tournament, as you know, you don't see it as much in the U.S. Open, but you, you tend to see some some names you don't recognize in the Open Championship, and and they go out and play well, um, at least in the first round or two, like your friend Richard Block. Yeah, <laughs> that was a wonderful story um, about. Go ahead, recite it quickly so you can. No, that the story. If you listen, uh, he tells a story that um, Richard Boxall, Boxall, oh, um, right. wonderful guest, and Richard, if you're listening, I'd love to have you back in the podcast. Uh, Richard tells a story that he was a five handicap golfer and he was looking to get a job, and his father said, "Well, if you uh, 
get your handicap down to one or two, you could possibly get a job for a sports goods manufacturer um, as the rep for golf. So, but you need to play a lot of competitions to get your handicap down. He said uh, 18 months later, he was teeing it up at the Open Championship. So successful had he been. And uh, he said he's never been more nervous than the first tee. He slices drive in the first tee at Muirfield. And they had five minutes to look for the ball. And the referee said, Mr. Boxall, you have one minute left. So they're looking for the ball. And as he looks over his shoulder, realizing he may have to go and tee off again, he sees in the tee Trevino, Watson, and Nicholas. And he's thinking to himself, oh, my God, as though things aren't bad enough, I'm going to have to go back up there and tee it up. And he said he made his mind up if that happened. He was just going to keep walking off the first tee to the car park and head home. But he had a wonderful first round. He was leading. And then he was, 24 he was. hours later, he was at home watching it on his sofa. <laughs> yeah, so no, those things happen. But talking about, you know, about watching some relatively unknown players, um, I had the benefit, as you mentioned, of watching Charlie play uh, in the AM at Cherry Hills the last couple of weeks or so. And uh, that's that's exciting because, I mean, I follow college golf as he's a college golfer. Um, I've you know, gotten to see some of these kids play over the years in, in national college events. Um, but, I mean, there was a 51-year-old guy in the field. And one of the guys in ours, um, in, our, in our threesome, um, he went to Georgia Tech, I'm, I'm sorry, LSU, um, graduated, got into the USM as, as a 23-year-old, went professional for a decade or so, Got finally got his amateur card back and tried for it, and he got in again uh, 20 years later at 43. Um, and, wow. and so that was fun to watch. Um, but what I also love to watch is the Walker Cup. And I think that is exciting, and obviously amateur golf, um, a lot of college guys, but not necessarily all college. There's some older guys, obviously, who are who who have uh, have contributed mightily over the years. And this year's going to be exciting. Mike McCoy is the captain, and uh, and and a wonderful guy. They'll be playing at the old course. Oh, and that's yeah, next weekend. Soon. No, very soon. And um, I, you know, I I would encourage anyone who enjoys golf to go and watch a golf tournament live. Because what I love about going to watch live golf tournaments is the quality of the golf that you don't appreciate in television. And the sounds. Oh, and the sounds and the ambience. But if you go to follow some of the DP Tour events in Europe, like the Czech Open's been played today, um, you can almost walk beside the players. You can get up close. And I go down to the practice ground, and you'll see these gentlemen and these ladies striping it like a mechanical machine. And it's the quality of the strike is fantastic and that doesn't come across but on television and this is what I, I was a television producer for BBC and I know that the things that all good events have is drama we want drama I mean when Jean van der Velt was leading the Open Championship I don't did you watch that live oh I did and it was just heartbreaking, heartbreaking. it was heartbreaking uh, but the drama and people, that was 1999 and people, it's almost like, like no, don't no, do I don't, but, that, but hand and heart, I think people want them to win. I think they did. But I think sometimes, and this isn't me, but I think sometimes people say, well, I don't want someone I've never heard of to win. I want, I want my hero to win. Now golf, do we have heroes anymore? And this is a slight aside. Do you think there's heroes anymore in the golf course? There used to be Arnold Palmer. You know, he just took on the course, hitched his pants, threw a cigarette in the ground. 
Jack Nicholas became an iconic hero, and when he won the when he won at the age of forty six, Augusta, I mean the whole country was glued to the television. I'm just wonder if we was Tiger a hero? Do you think? Certainly the greatest player, if not you know one of the top two. You can argue all day between Jack and Tiger to play the game, but uh, no, I wouldn't give him hero status whatsoever. Um, and uh, frankly, a lot of the folks who are playing today, um, I think what what imbued that sense of heroism is accessibility. Um, the Trevinos, the players, the Nicholases, the Palmers, um, they're accessible through golf. They were much more involved, I think, in um, the commercial side of golf. I mean, who, who and those of us in the States remember Arnold Palmer as a Cadillac guy. You know, he's, to this day, there's an Arnold Palmer Cadillac in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. Um, so that, to me, uh, that, that type of accessibility. I mean, I remember a picture of you, uh, your Christmas card probably 20 years ago, of you standing with Jack Nicholas at yeah. the Open. And I think it read... Uh, Merry Christmas from arguably, arguably two of the best golfers of all time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I mean, try getting that with, with Tiger Woods nowadays. Nah. A lot of these folks, um, I don't know if it's just been a shift in the DNA, whether there's so much money in the game now, whether it's yeah, robotic from junior golf all the way up, that they're they're taught to to be a bit more reserved. I don't know what the I don't know what it is, but it's changed. Well, I'd, I'm not suggesting we want to see pro golf turn the way of WWF wrestling, but uh, I think that uh, in in sport, I what people get paid is you know, it's nothing. It's not my business, but it doesn't make me enjoy it more. Uh, what I would like to see is uh, rivalries. I do. I mean, I, I do. You know, would you do you think it's fair to say that Phil Mickelson nowadays is almost the bad guy? I think that he's he's sort of through this whole live initiative. Um, you know, has put himself in that in that spot. Now, it's not to say that, that he wasn't already there. Not necessarily the bad guy. And I don't want to get into the good or the bad about the live tour, but he's certainly been a gadfly in the in at, you know in the side of the, the PGA, and he's rubbed a few players wrong clearly. And you've seen some some of that. You know, I think with Rory and others. Um, so yeah, I I would put him there ultimately. But getting, getting back to that accessibility thing, there are some players of this generation, in the younger generation, who do that exceptionally well. So I don't want to um, I, I poo-poo um, their effort because I mean, if you look at, I think, a Ricky Fowler, for instance, he's always been connected to his fan base. And I think genuinely, JT is another guy. Spieth is another guy. Um, you know, but... There, there seem to be an anomaly today um, than than sort of the norm. Well, I, I, you know, my my thinking in this now is, if you look back in the days when there's a lot of great characters in golf, I think they didn't come through the college system. These are guys who were not necessarily hustlers, but they had to work their way to, into the the, t- the top flight. I think nowadays, with the amount of coaching that kids get, they probably get financial management. They probably get. Uh, professional management you might get media skills training so nil deals was an nil deal name image and likeness i didn't know that is that the thing oh big time and uh we're talking 
tens of hundreds and sometimes millions of dollars. So these guys are essentially de facto professional athletes, but also with uh, college and amateur status. Now, if, if that's true, well, it is true. You've just told me it's true. That would suggest you're going to protect that brand and that image very carefully. So you're not going to, I mean, if you, t- if you want some funny nights, talk to the guys who are now, the, the Ian Woosnams and uh, the people of his generation. Darren Clarks. The Darren Clarks. What it was like when they were 20s, traveling to tournaments in a bus. I mean, they would rent a little bus and sleep in it, and they'd turn up and they'd get, yeah, they'd play with hangovers because they'd got to lock in in a bar. Well, that's why I thought early on that's why the, uh, the European Ryder Cup team always had this um, camaraderie that you can't bake. You know, you can't add water and stir. And it, through the 70s and the 80s and even the 90s, um, even sort of beyond that, because they knew each other so well, because they, they grew up together, they had the van runs, they slept in hotel rooms together, they, you know, they, they socialized outside of golf, when on tour, instead of going to the room and ordering room service, they'd go down to the pub or down to the restaurant, and eight of them would sit there and eat together. No, that's, I think that's very true, and I think that uh, the European tour has always been slightly more collegiate. The American tour is, by its nature, a very cut and thrust, winning is everything. So, but I think the Americans have found a way over that. I think, I remember talking to Tony Jacklin and he said that when Azinger was the captain of the Ryder Cup team, Tony said, I'll show you how I, I built the, the, the teams and I created pods and every pod had a, like a, a father figure of someone who managed the pod. So the pods were three or four players who were going to probably play together. And he said, so they created these very strong bonds. And when Azinger managed the Ryder Cup team that he won, Mind you, I think, was that against Nick Faldo? Um, he did exactly the same thing. And I think America, ever since then, has become very, very much more bonded as a team. I mean, I know that they said that Tiger Woods, when, the, when he, in his early Ryder Cups, didn't, didn't mix. You know, he'd come in late, he'd do his own thing. Yeah, but I think that, that um, given how much the current captains have relied and do rely on Tiger either, um, you know, sort of as, as vice captains in the past or to bring him in and talk to the team. Uh, I think that, I don't want to call it maturation on the part of Tiger's um, sort of journey, but I think he's coming at it from a different perspective now with a little bit more experience and age on him. Um, and he's always going to be a very, a very valuable part of the Ryder Cup experience. Well, let's bring it back before we wrap up. This thing is about what do fans want, and there's no doubt at all, fans. Drama. But they want to see Tiger Woods. They want to see, do you think Tiger's going to come back and play again? Or do you think he's going to just turn up for the majors and just basically be doing tribute, a tribute retirement over the next if 10 he years? he can, he will. He's the most competitive golfer, I think, that we've ever seen in terms of what he's been able to overcome. Clearly, Hogan overcame an incredible uh, injury. Um, Tiger's had several, you know, the, obviously the accident was, was terrible for his lower extremities, but with the knees and the backs and all the other surgeries, um, I do. I mean, I, I, think, I think he'll play, but he'll pick his spots. I mean, certainly the Masters is one that I think would always be a siren's call for him. Yeah, I get the, I get the impression he's, uh, his injuries are pretty bad to his leg. I mean, you see him limping now. I don't know, but uh, it's a great shame. But I think we can agree on one thing. You watch golf, you want to see drama. 
Uh, that's what the fans want on television. I think if you go and watch a tournament live, you just want to be part of the atmosphere. You're at the US, I'm sure. What's the atmosphere like there? Um, it's very congenial. The players, you know, for the most part, you know, 50 to 75 percent of these guys have known each other for years because they've been playing in major national tournaments or college tournaments. Um, the, the, the facilities were outstanding. The membership so welcoming. Uh, it was just a once in a lifetime opportunity. Obviously, he Charlie was disappointed he didn't make the cut, but it was um, it was spectacular. The whole thing was just done at you know, such a high level. And you also said you could get very close to the play. Yeah, yeah, um, much like you said, um, you know, with the DP tour, we could, you know, we could follow them from behind, you know, on the fairways. I tend to be out front just because I'd like to be another set of eyes when these balls, you know, or when they're driving the ball. And, uh, but yeah, it's, everyone was very, you know, amicable. Uh, we happen to have a fairly chatty threesome. And I think that helps help Charlie because he's. Of course, when Charlie was playing, you were quiet. When the other two guys were playing, you were sneezing. Or, or, <laughs> was, was I was like semi Texting your Klaxon and your starter pistol. Sorry, guys, just to do that. I, I tell you, you know, it's a bit like Walker Cup. I love watching the Walker Cup on television because, apart from the fact it's match play, and this is, again, I, I say this as a fan of the game, a man who loves golf, loves the traditions, the history. My, the books I write are about the mental game. So I, I do love golf so much. And I feel mean saying this, but I don't mean it to be mean. One of the things I still love about the Walker Cup, because an amateur, you'll occasionally see just a rank bad shot. There you go. I can hit that shot. <laughs> I mean, I've seen shanks. I've seen dunches. I mean, I've seen, I've seen people obviously stay in bunkers. Uh, I've seen drives that go miles left, miles right. So the, I quite like that about the Walker Cup. But... Uh, yeah, it's a spectacular, um, spectacular event. And, um, you know, last played at Seminole, um, where the Americans won. And, uh, you know, we'll see what happens now that it's at the old course. And uh, But my predictions are I think we'll hold up pretty well over there. And I think that we'll also with the Ryder Cup. I mean, obviously, um, you know, Luke has the ability to set up the course. We're going to have some narrow fairways and deeper rough. Um, and, you know... But at the end of the day, you can say the Americans are going to pull that off. Yeah, interesting. we discussed it in the last week's podcast, and the general consensus was it's almost too close to call. And if it's going to be, they think it's going to be 14 and a half, 13 and a half. I don't think it's going to be that. I think the European fan base make a huge difference, but the American paper looks pretty good. On the well, American so team on paper who looks was good. On the, who was on the pod last week? Well, Neil Faulkner and right. uh, Mike European. Kershaw. Mike, European. You Me, were there, I assume. Were you European, European, yeah. So that's why these guys saw it too close to call. Uh, do you guys, do you want to start chanting <laughs> USA, USA? Would that, would that make you feel better to finish olé, the podcast? Olé, olé, olé. Olé. That's a good chant, USA. That's not a good chant. That's irritating. That is annoying. It's very jingoistic. Well, olé, olá is just a joyful celebration of people coming together to celebrate a wonderful game. Loss. A wonderful loss. Okay, let's have let's let's have a little side bet, but we'll All discuss right. that okay. later. Okay, well look, that's it. Th- Matt, thanks very much. And uh, so that's it for this week. So so before I before I go, I just want to clarify that Matt Barr didn't mean it when he said loss. He meant that he thinks the Europeans will win. Then that's right, Matt, isn't it? 
Whatever you say, Dr. Seeger. That's that way. That's the right answer. <laughs> anyway, that's it for this week. If you are interested in improving the mental game of golf, I can't recommend any more thoroughly than I can that you visit uh, SeegerGolf.com where there's a variety of options, books, online training, and one-to-one coaching for those of you that are interested. Um, and that's it for this week. So uh, wishing you all good golf wherever you may be and from a very, very hot and a very, very sticky South Carolina, it's goodbye from me and until we meet again, play good golf wherever you may be.